What's up, everybody? This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and I'm your host, Sean Dustin. So happy Monday again. Here we go. We got a double header for you. Uh, we got uh, two, uh, two, I tell you, two great live streams lined up for you this evening. Uh, the first one is with Mike Morawski. I hope I'm, I pronounced that right. Probably not, though. And then the next one is uh, six o'clock. That will be Ron Ross. And I met him uh, on a flight back from Tampa, Florida. That's an interesting story, too. Uh, he had two sons that were uh, both in federal prison. So we're going to get his perspective as a father. And then uh, Mike Morawski, uh, who is who's going to be interviewing right now, uh, he actually did uh, some time as well. He did 10 years for, uh, he was a, a bank, not a bank, a real estate investor. He ended up doing 10 years or get sent, getting sentenced to 10 years in federal prison. So we're going to find out a little bit more about that as well. But if you are on uh, YouTube, do me a favor, thumbs the video up and uh, subscribe. Please subscribe if, you, if you're getting anything out of what I'm doing here. Facebook, same thing. Share, like the video, Periscope, whatever you do over there. Twitter, whatever you do over there as well. Um, and yeah, uh, check out the uh, website uh, if you get a chance. Nowhere to go but up pod.com. That's pretty brand new. Uh, still under construction in some of the pages, but for the most part, it's up and running. Go and head over there and check that out. Uh, yeah. And so when I get back after these messages, uh, we'll dive right into this story. Sean Dustin spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. Upon release in 2006, he had nothing but the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and legal paperwork. In 2010, he kicked a longtime methamphetamine habit and started the long climb back up the ladder of life. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. If you want transparency and authenticity, you're in the right place. This is the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast, and this is Sean Dustin. What's happening, Mike? How are you? I'm good, Sean. How are you? I'm doing great. Doing great. Just uh, enjoying the uh, Monday. It was a great weekend. Uh, I got a chance to take my daughter out on a jet ski for the first time. She's not even four yet. Nice. Nice. Hey, I just wanted to say uh, good job on my name. You did it right. I did? Oh, yeah. right. <laughs> I know you had that little concern, that hesitation at the beginning, but you were yeah. good. All right, cool, man. I appreciate that. So uh, what we got going on here, we've got some, ah, and I forgot to share this out to a bunch of different places. Oh, well. Um, so we've got people watching and listening on either YouTube, where we got, we got some uh, Periscope people watching on, and then also on some Facebook. And then we also got a visitor in uh, Green Room. So we got a few different places that uh, we're, we're piping this to. So let's get into this, Mike. We met on Clubhouse uh, in a, I think, a podcast, uh, the Real Talk Podcasting uh, Pod Tank, which is on Friday mornings where you can find a guest or be a guest. Is that correct? That's it. That's where we met on Clubhouse, that little room I pop into from time to time to see if uh, um, what's going on and what the conversation is because – I have a podcast or a couple and, and I like to see who else is doing it. So, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I listened to that on the way to work. Cause I'm usually uh, driving at the time that it's that starts six 30 Eastern time. And so I pop into there and, and, you know, listen mostly, you know, I actually, I did do some, uh, some pitching before, uh, you know, when I had more time, but, yeah, that's a great place and a resource to be able to find people and, and connect with folks in the podcasting space. Yeah, for sure. So, 
So what did, tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, you're a, 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 an accomplished real estate investor. Um, you know, you were doing well and, and, uh, you know, seemed like, you know, from what I read, you know, things were good for you. Hey, you know, here's what I like about real estate, Sean, is I don't think you're ever accomplished. Um, I, I think you are, I myself, I'm always learning. I learn from new people all the time. People I coach, people I train, uh, they might always might be a different way of doing something different than I do. You know, I, I love real estate though. I've always loved it. Uh, I was in the, um, I was in the general contracting business actually. And this is going back. I have 30 years experience in the real estate space. And I was in the general contracting business and I had a pretty successful contracting business in, in the Northwest suburbs of Chicago. And I woke up one morning and um, I looked at my wife at the time and I said, man, I can't do this anymore. I'm just burnt out, tired of banging nails, beating my thumbs up and um, decided that uh, I was going to sell my company and take a year off. And that's what we did. And then I, we went and we uh, house hacked a couple of two flats and this was long before house hacking or or rehabbing a property while you live in it was famous or popular and but here i've always believed success leaves clues so i knew that if i did what other successful people did or modeled that that i could be successful so uh, while i was doing these rehabs i met a real estate agent who was extremely good at what he did and he made a lot of money back then. And I really had a lot of, had a, had a big appreciation for what he was doing and how he was selling houses. So I went to him and I said, Hey, Todd, listen, I, I think I'd like to go in the real estate business. He goes, man, I think you'd be great at it. I think your personality and what, you know, that you'd be great with people. I said, good, good. I said, so can I shadow you and can I, um, you know, come and see what your team does. He goes, no. He said, I'm going to do better than that for you. And I'll never forget this conversation. He said, I'm going to make you a cassette tape. Now I'm really dating myself, Sean, because I bet there's <laughs> some people, <laughs> some people might not know what a cassette tape is, much less have a machine that you make one on. So, right, right. Yeah. So, so he made me a cassette tape and I listened to it over and over and over again. And it was those simple fundamentals that I put into my business that I put into my daily life that helped my business to grow. Um, and I went out my first nine months in the real estate business. I sold 78 houses. I built a team selling 125 homes a year and did that consecutively for about eight years. Now, I tell you that, you know, because the average real estate agent in our marketplace in, in the U.S. sells between nine and 12 houses a year. So I was just a little productive. Um, <laughs> you think? Yeah. A little bit of overachiever there. I am. I am. Yeah. Wait till we get to that part. <laughs> so, um, so in 2005, I saw the market starting to shift and soften, and I knew I was going to have to go do something else. And... I um, wasn't sure what, but I, I had done a lot of work for a real estate uh, company years prior, and they were a syndicator. And what a syndicator does is they take a real estate deal, they put it together, they go raise private equity from family and friends and people that they know, bring that private equity with that real estate deal together and stay in the middle. And as long as everything goes well, Everybody makes money. Everybody's happy. It's a big love fest and people raise their arms in the air and sing Kumbaya. But as soon as one side of, of trouble happens, then, you know, everybody uh, hates everybody. So, And so what happened was I saw the market shifting and I knew I was going to have to go do something else. So I decided I wanted to go in the apartment business. And I went out and I raised $18 million, bought $60 million worth of real estate was about 4,000 apartments in five different states. And I did that in a 30-month period. Wow. Um, grew, grew a property management company managing 7,500 units in those, in those same markets. And um, today, as a result of that, as a result of that knowledge and experience, I, I'm, in the, I'm in the coaching and training space today. Yeah, man, that's a lot. That that that's a huge uh, amount of of 
you know, money and real estate and, you know, in that short a period of time. Yeah. So, you know, you seem to be doing well. And, the and so what, what period of time is this, did you say? Yeah. So that was between uh, 2005 and 2008. Okay. So in 2008, I'm having lunch with my CFO and we're watching the news and uh, they're carrying boxes out of Lehman Brothers by the dozens. Now, I don't know if you remember what happened in 2008, but the world mm -hmm. blew up. All the bad paper and all the good paper and everything just, you know, went crazy. And I looked at him across the table and I said, we're screwed, aren't we? And he said, yeah, we're in big trouble, man. <laughs> And it wasn't but a few months later that we really started to come off the rails. And I thought, you know, when 2008 happened and the, and the residential market blew up, I thought, man, you know, the, the commercial market's going to withstand this. People are going to need a place to live. Apartments are going to be a safe haven. It's going to be a good place. And it was fine for a while, but all of a sudden things shifted and changed. I, um, I wound up because of occupancy, people moved out. I was in markets that were heavily driven by, by the car industry and the transportation industry. Those were the first markets to really get whacked by the economic crisis. And as a result of being in those markets, uh, my people moved out of my apartments. Uh, occupancies went down. I couldn't pay my bills. I couldn't pay my investors. Wound up imploding. So I had some companies that were going to foreclosure and some properties that were going to foreclosure and, and I should have just let them go to foreclosure and I should have let those investors get, get hurt. But I'm the kind of guy that wants to be a hero, wants to save everybody and, and keep the ship uprighted. So I decided to start moving money between companies and I would take money from profitable companies that I had, put it in non-profitable companies to, to shore up the ship. Now, my thinking was that, you know, hey, recessions only last 17 or 18 months. You know, it's a 10% correction, but nobody saw this coming. Lasted seven or eight years, and it was a 40% correction. It was just, you know, some people are still affected by it today. So I'm moving money, and my attorney, my accountant both said, hey, it's okay to do that. Just leave a paper trail, and, you know, when the market changes, go back and put the put the money back, and you'll be fine. Well, it would have been fine, except Sean, I didn't disclose it to my investors. So, you know, if I would have come to you, Sean, and said, hey, look, we have this problem. We're going to take money from this company and we're going to move it into this company. You probably would have said, yeah, let's see what we can do. Let's let's ride the storm out. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't do that. And so as a result, um, it, it all imploded and backfired. I wound up being charged with uh, wire fraud and mail fraud charges, actually 11 counts to begin with. And uh, I, I wound up pleading guilty to one count of each and uh, getting sentenced to 120 months in federal prison. Mm. So take me to the day in the courtroom when uh, you got that. Uh, so you obviously, did you take it to trial or did you know that you were, that they, that they had you basically? Well, you know, come on, John, we all know that the federal government has a 97% conviction rate. And if you mm -hmm. take it to trial, they make it worse. So as it was, they were trying for 244 months and told me that if I didn't plead guilty and I went to trial, that they were going to prosecute my wife for nothing. So, um, you know, of course, we're not going to walk down that road. I don't want my wife to get prosecuted. And I never told my wife about business. She didn't know anything that was going on. And that's a whole nother story. But um, I, I pled guilty to one count of each and did a blind plea. So I didn't go to trial. I walked into court to do a, a sentencing hearing. We walked into court. Uh, it was a seven and a half hour sentencing hearing. I had a forensic accountant on the stand for five and a half hours who testified that my loss was $2.2 million dollars. And I wound up being indicted with a, a restitution and a loss of 18 million um, because the judge found that there was so much discrepancy between what the government said, what I said, what the uh, forensic accountant said. 
And I'll never forget, Sean, you know, I stood in court that day. My attorney leaned over and he wrote, wrote a number on a piece of paper and handed it to me. It said 48. And I knew that he thought that I was going to get 48 months. The government was trying for 222. We weren't, we didn't ask for anything and nobody really knew. At one point, the prosecutor even walked over, looked at my attorney and said, I have no idea what's going to happen here. Um, it, it, it all shit, all things seemed like they were going in, in a decent direction during sentencing. Well, you know, as decent as it could be, I was still going to get some time. I knew I was going to go to prison, but I didn't know for how long. And I'll never forget when they read the, um, when he read the sentencing and they read all of the, um, after, you know, all the, all the uh, standard, uh, judgment and commitment things that they, they put into your sentencing about what you can do and what you can't do and what you're expected mm -hmm. to do afterwards. And then he said, um, Mr. Morawski, after, after all this consideration and not really knowing what to do, I'm sentencing you to 120 months. Now, Sean, at that point I went, okay, my mind started to go 12 months in a year, 120 months divided by Oh my God, that's 10 years. <laughs> and all I heard, Sean, was this. <gasps> my wife and daughter sucked all the air out of the room. I could hear a pin drop after that. Everything beyond that was surreal. I don't remember a thing. And it was um, it was one of the craziest places I had ever been. Wow. Yeah, I would I would imagine. I mean, because you know, you seem like a, a like just to just to look at you, you seem like a, a decent dude. You know what you did didn't doesn't seem like like a like a bad thing. You know what I mean in in relation to like you know what some people are locked away for. You know you just I mean I I, I get how that would be a, a a crime, but it just that seems a bit of excessive. So were they trying to make a example out of you was this around the time when the uh when the foreclosures and all that other stuff were, were happening and they were looking for somebody to blame yeah so you know of course the judge said hey mr morowski we're going to make an example out of you right you know they i think they say that to everybody but but here's what i know five years before i was indicted and i got indicted in 2011 but five years before i would have was indicted um the sec would have stepped in would have fined me $250,000, slapped me on the hand, said, go back, straighten out your business, don't let it happen again. But after Bernie Madoff and the white collar world went crazy, um, they, they penalized everybody for everything. So, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, they made an example of me, all right. And, and here's Sean, here's what happened to, right? I'm on vacation in 2010. My family and I are in California and I come back from vacation, walk in the office on Monday morning. My business partner hands me two business cards, says, hey, you need to get yourself a criminal attorney. I said, what do you mean? He goes, look, I can't talk to you anymore. You need to get yourself a criminal attorney. Now, we were best friends, Sean, 26 years, best friends. Um, 2005, I said, hey, let's go. He, he, he had been working for me as a real estate sales agent on my team. I said, look, man, I said, I think we can go make some money. I said, come on, be my partner. Brought him under my wing, taught him everything, thought he was a good operations guy and had the back end of the business. Um, but things just got out of hand. You know, I would ask him how things were going. He'd say, oh, no problem. I got everything. So I put my blinders on, move forward, building the business, right? And, you know, come to find out that he testified at the grand jury to cut a deal. He did our in-house legal counsel and our director of finance um, all went to cut a deal with the grand jury so that the director of finance and our in-house legal counsel would not be charged on anything and he would get less time. So they threw me under the bus. Um, I got 10 years. He served 30 months. So yeah, that's, that's dirty. <laughs> but, now, listen, I mean, don't get me wrong, Sean, I broke the law. Okay. And, and I should, I, I should have been penalized for breaking the law. I do believe 10 years was a little excessive, but 
I also believe there was a plan, a greater plan in the whole thing too, which I can tell you about. Well, you're a better dude than me because I'd be pissed. <laughs> you know, luck, luckily, you know, when I went to, uh, uh, when I went and did my bid, uh, it was only three years. So, I mean, that's, it was kind of, to me, was a drop in the bucket. You know, it could have been a lot worse than that. But, I mean, three years, well, I, I would like to say that it was enough, but it, it wasn't enough until I did two more violations and I'm like, oh, I'm done. I'm good. I don't want to keep playing this game. But, uh, yeah, so tell me a little bit about uh, what you're thinking. Uh, did you get a chance to turn yourself in or did you get taken from court? No, I, I had a chance to turn myself in. I turned myself in for the indictment. And then um, based on that track record, I had a great recommendation from the magistrate um, and uh, the magistrate, you know, recommended that I could, you know, so, so when I got uh, from uh, um, sentencing, they gave me 70 days before I had to report. And I had an ankle bracelet on and then I got to report, but you know, there's just something about entering prison, right, Sean? I mean, mm -hmm. you know, they take you, they took me from this middle-class lifestyle. I was the neighborhood baseball coach, soccer coach, had a great marriage. I was home most nights for dinner. And they plucked me out of that, put me in a 12 by 12 room with three men that I didn't know, nor did I like, living out of a two by five locker uh, with three green outfits and, a, and five pairs of underpants, wondering what the hell happened in my life. And um, I walked around every day wondering how I was going to get through much less today, much less the 10 years. And so um, all I could think about is not getting in trouble so I didn't lose any good time, right? And so I'm in prison about 17 days thinking, man, my life is over. How did I do this? This is the worst possible thing that could ever happen to me. And then my wife told me she was going to divorce me. And that ruined me. It wrecked me. Um, and so I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, there were guys around me. They wanted to take my shoelaces because they thought I was going to hurt myself. And so um, I'm probably in prison about six weeks, and I walk into the gym one day. And you have to understand, I've gone from being a marathon runner and, you know, work out all the time in pretty decent physical shape to being 35 pounds overweight, hating myself, being depressed and um, wanting to cut my fingers off. So um, I walk in the gym one day and this kid walks up to me and I say kid because he was younger than me. And he says, um, uh, hey, don't let these people beat you. All they want to do is take from you everything you've ever known. They can take your real estate, they can take your money, they can take your cars, they can take destroy your family. But what they can't take is who you are and what you're made of. They can't take what helped you build those successful companies. He said, come in this gym every day, work out, start losing weight. You'll start feeling better about yourself. Start doing things to plan your life. Get that 10 years back. Best advice I ever got, Sean. Started going to the gym, started losing weight. Um, started feeling better about myself, made a decision to go back to college. I got a four-year degree in, in theology, bachelor's degree. And, and, you know, there's that saying in prison, Sean, that you can either do the time or let the time do you. Mm -hmm. And I chose to do the time. And so um, uh, I, I, I wrote two books while I was gone, both on one on real estate investing, uh, which is called Exit Plan, your complete guide to multifamily investing and why you need an exit plan before you buy. I wrote a book on property management. I wrote an ethics course. I taught real estate, property management, and ethics and Bible studies for five and six years in prison. And I was on an outreach program. I'd go into the community, uh, tell my story to the local uh, businesses, and um, uh, college students at the, at the colleges in the area. Went out about 40 times. Started a 12-step program. Uh, started a group in prison, myself and a few other guys. And uh, we all got sober. Helped a bunch of guys get sober along the way. And um, I, I met a professor from the University of Minnesota. 
and he and I co-authored a paper together, an ethics paper that we had published this year in the Business Journal of Ethics. And it gets taught at the collegiate level for forensic accounting classes and sales and marketing classes. So I did a lot while I was gone. I really re-engineered myself, re, uh, made a real impact in my life and, and the life of some other people. And today I'm in the coaching and training space and hope that my story brings a story of hope and inspiration to people that, hey, you know, we all make mistakes. You can stumble, you can fall, but don't stay down, get back up. So, Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. And yeah, you did. You were uh, definitely an overachiever in uh, while you did did your time. And you know, that's there are different ways that you can do time. You know, some guys they go there, and, and you know this, uh, Mike. Some guys they go there, and and you know they just want to hang out on the yard all day, or in state, or there's are people that just want to stay in the unit all day, and don't want to do a whole lot. You know, it's really the time is what you make of it. I mean, you know, there's. I mean, there's, there are things that you can do. And I think a lot of it depends on, on, you know, the, the yard that you actually land on and where you can get. Um, so did you start out in a, uh, a low or a medium? No, I didn't. I went right to a, I went right to a camp and, you know, listen, a camp's not like being in a lower or a medium. I get that, but don't kid yourself. I mean, there's all that same political stuff mm -hmm. that goes on and, you know, um, the whole respect thing and everything else that happens, you know, it happens at that level too. It's just not as loud. And well, there's more, to, there's more to lose there. So, I mean, you know, some of the, some of those guys that are in those camps came from, you know, they started out in a high and, you know, just made their way down to a medium, a medium into a low. And then they finally made their way into a camp, but yeah. they've experienced a lot of the, the stuff that goes on in there. So, I mean, you know, versus, you know, some of you guys that came in off the streets probably have never seen anything like that. Yeah. So, you know, it's really a different, uh, a bunch of, a bunch of different differences there. And, you know, you'd still a bunch of people, you know, stacked on top of each other, you know, from different backgrounds being forced to coalesce and or coalesce or whatever that word is, uh, to, to mix, you know, and, and it's, uh, I, it was tough for me. I don't know about you. Um, so did you do any research before? Cause you had some time to, you know, prepare to, to leave. So did you do any research? Uh, did you talk to any prison consultants or anything like that? Uh, yeah, no, you? no prison consultants. Um, uh, matter of fact, I kept asking my attorney if there was somebody. He said, oh, we'll find you somebody when the time is right. And we just never did it. Um, and I was so focused on making sure that my family was going to be okay when I was gone. I, I actually took that two years from the day I got indicted till the time I got sentenced. Um, to build a, a property management business for my ex-wife that, you know, kept her and the kids in the house. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful, you know, for that, that I was able to do that and leave her in a position. Cause Sean, you know, Hey, listen, I never flew private. I didn't buy a big boat or houses or cars. And I, you know, I, I didn't steal any money. Um, I tried to build a business. I, all the money was back in the business and, and, you know, God, I wish I would have put a couple million bucks in the ground somewhere, you know, um, like, like Junior and the Sopranos, right? <laughs> right. So. So tell me one of the, uh, you know, because you had a great run when you were in prison. You did a lot of stuff to better yourself. Um, you know, what was a, a day, a day like for you there? Was it, you know, did you have any issues or was it just kind of like, you know, you just sort of fit in and, and, and melded to, to the situation and, and were pliable or, you know, was there any kind of, um, did you experience any difficulties while you were, while you were trying to do your time? Did I? Oh. <laughs> um, so yeah, you know, I had a couple of fights and, um, a couple of situations that, that didn't go well. Um, but I, I, I also had a couple of really, really good friends that would that came to my rescue a couple of times when I needed it that were, you know, 
high-ranking gang members that mm. you know um, would show up because because you know what happened after time was people realized that uh, um, I wasn't a snitch. I didn't tell anybody else um, that I I didn't care what other people did. You know, I wasn't I wasn't in it, and I wasn't up to any BS, right? So you know, hey, look at one issue like a cell phone, right? I call home on Memorial Day. I'm probably in prison about four years. I call home on a Memorial Day. My son answers the phone and he's hysterical. Um, his mom is up to, you know, my, his, his mom came off the rails after I left. And, you know, I can't blame her. It was a tough deal. Um, but, you know, she had some things going on. He was all upset. And, you know, so I call. I, so, you know how the phone works in prison, right? You get 15 minutes, you got to wait 30 minutes. If you're out of minutes, you don't get time. You can't, if you don't have enough money, you can't get time. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of, you know, a joke, right? I never used a cell phone except for this one time. And so um, I go over to this dorm and, you know, I have to walk past all these guys that are, are like looking out. Right. And they're, they're like, I said, hey, don't worry. Mo knows me. Mo knows I'm, I'll be fine. You know, <laughs> I walk down and Mo looks at me and he goes, what are you doing here? I said, man, I got a problem. He goes, what do you need? I said, I need to use the phone. He goes, hey, get off the phone, cleared the phone, put a new SIM card in it. I said, who do you need to call? I dialed a number. Um, I got on the phone with my brother-in-law, talked to my brother-in-law for about an hour. And... Um, uh, when I got off the phone, they erased the phone, threw the SIM card away, didn't have to worry about that ever backlashing on me. But, you know, just because I was friends and did some things for some other people and they trusted you, you know, you, you could get some things done when you needed to get them done, right? But I did have my challenges. You know, I was six years in, I had a challenge with a guy and all of a sudden I'm the racist guy and, and you know, and people knew better, but you know, uh, fire gets hot sometimes. You know. Yeah, yeah. What what's uh, what's one of the impressions that you got that uh, when you went that you you may have thought things would be like, and then when you got there, they were like completely not how you thought they would be. Yeah. So when I went there, you know, my attorney said, "Oh, don't worry about it. You're going to be with doctors and lawyers. It's fine." <laughs> But nobody tells you how many street corner pharmacists are going to be locked up with you. So <laughs> nobody tells you about the drug guys and, you know, and uh, so the, the whole idea of uh, um, the currency and the stamps and the exchange of, of value for a stamp and how, how much a cigarette costs. And I don't smoke, right? So I, I got a kick out of guys that pay six bucks, you know, a book of stamps for, for a cigarette, you know? <laughs> it's like, wow, good for you, man. You really need that. And um, you know how they got stuff over, over the fence or, you know, what the guards did and the guards' involvement and, you know, I, you know, a lot of interesting things go on that, you know, you couldn't write this stuff, Sean. You know, yeah. it's all, it's all kind of a fallacy, you know? So did you, did you ever think that uh, when, you know, cause sometimes once you get a glimpse of what the system really is, it makes you start to scratch your head and go, Hmm, this is really strange. Yeah. You know, were there any times when you thought that to yourself? Like, you know, like, is this, am I in like some sort of a, a racket? Once a week. Yeah. <laughs> you know, come on. We all know that the only reason the prison, the prison system is in place is, is it's, you know, it's, it, it, it makes money. It keeps jobs for people. It, you know, the union is a powerful thing there. Mm. Yeah, it sure is. Who's your listening audience, by the way? My what? <laughs> your listening audience. Uh, my listening audience is varied. Uh, we have, you know, folks from all over, uh, listen, 
people that are interested in comeback stories like yourself, um, you know, which that's a great one. So, I mean, what are you doing? It's a great segue into where I'm going next, which is, uh, you know, you've got uh, my core intentions and you have a coaching program and stuff like that. Uh, before we get to that, though, since you are in real estate, do you got any tips for anything that's, that's coming or, you know, anything that you've been sort of looking out for on the radar? Because those moratoriums are going to be lifted here at the end of the month, right? Yeah, supposedly, and unless the government, which is famous for kicking the can down the road, does it again. So um, I don't think they will this time, though. I have a, I have a friend who is the largest, uh, one of the largest foreclosure attorneys in the country, and he handles all of the banks and their foreclosure portfolios. So he works for in uh, for um, Aquin and Midland, all the servicers, right? So when you don't pay your mortgage, they send it to him. He starts. He does the foreclosure on it. He did about eight hundred a month for a number of years. Mm -hmm. And um, what what he said the other night, we were at, at dinner, and he said, "My business is down to about fifteen percent of what I was doing." He says, but I think by the end of July, they'll be back to 75% of what I was doing. So, so what that means is that um, um, there's an onslaught coming. I'm, I'm not a economist, but I, I listened to a couple of economists that I really like and have liked over the years that, that tell some, some interesting statistics. And the consensus right now is by the third quarter of 2023, we're going to see some issues um, in the in the bond market, in the financial end. We're going to see a lot of foreclosures back in the marketplace, and that'll dictate a lot of what's going on um, real estate wise. So, yes, I think that once the uh, eviction moratoriums get lifted. People are going to start kicking people out. People are going to be hard pressed. If you haven't paid your mortgage or if you haven't paid your rent and you get kicked out and now you go to somebody goes to run a credit report on you, what landlord is going to rent to you after you haven't paid your, your rent for 10, 12, 14 months? And because you, you, you know, because the system said you didn't have to, but yet you got a new TV and maybe a new set of wheels. So um, that ha I, I, I've seen that and heard that happen a lot. So, you know, people, I think some people are going to be in trouble and, and find themselves. And then the flip side is some people are going to be in a really good position to capitalize because I think there's some dry powder um, on the sidelines of people just sitting back, waiting to see what's going to happen and buy deals. The other, the other piece of it is I'm seeing people pay way too much for property right now. I just got I just got outbid on a deal by eight hundred thousand dollars, and it made me think. You know, I barely could make that deal work. I just barely got by at at the price that that I had it underwritten at. And if somebody was willing to pay eight hundred thousand more than me, I know at that number that the deal did not work. So what is that guy doing? Is that guy going out to his investors saying, hey, we got a deal here that's going to throw off mid-teens return and, and a cash-on-cash cash return of 8%? You know, I, I think not. You know, I don't think you can do it unless you are, are lying to your investors. So I tell people today, hey, listen, watch what you're doing. You know, act cautiously, underwrite conservatively. Um and, and you'll be okay. You'll weather the storm. I think you should keep doing deals, but just be more conservative than you would have been a little bit ago. So in comparison to 2008, what, what would you say? And I know you're not, you can't predict anything and, you know, but uh, do you think it'll be as bad or not as bad? You know, I don't think it'll be as bad and I don't think it'll be as bad because I think the banks are more prepared and the government's not going to let the banks fail this time. Fa fail, meaning not let them do what they should have the first time, which was, you know, 
implode and you know let the let the market do what the market's supposed to do right they short everything up so yeah. Yeah. interesting 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 all right so um let's talk a little bit about your coaching we're about 40 minutes right now so at about 10 about 45 got about five minutes we'll start winding it down because i get to roll right into another one right after this okay um so let's talk a little bit about your your coaching business and uh how that how did that come to be and uh, uh everything that we need to know about it yeah so, um, so I'm in the, in the coaching and training space. And I, I, when I was in prison, you know, I knew I would have to come home and do something and, and reinvent myself. And I've got all these years of experience and knowledge. And, you know, along with the experience and the knowledge comes a level of wisdom. You know, one of the first podcasts I was on when I told my story, there was probably 60 people. It was, a, it was an afternoon meetup. And I, and I told my story. And I'm nervous, right? And one guy, one guy says, hey, are you raising money again? I said, no. He said, let me know when you are. And it got me to think that, you know, I, there's a level of trust that people will have in me today that they might not have had in me before because of the experience and the mistakes I made and knowing that I will do everything to not make those mistakes. And on the other hand, I think there's a level of um, untrust that people will have. So uh, it, it's no different today than it was back then, right? So I have a lot of experience and knowledge that I can teach people. I wrote two books while I was gone. I wrote two home study courses. I have all kinds of material. I do, I do a couple of podcasts uh, during the week and, you know, Listen, my life is multifamily. I live it, breathe it, eat it, and sleep it. And so I'm, I'm teaching people how to get in the business. I'm teaching people how to scale their business. I'm teaching people how to operate their business. And then I'm holding them accountable. So I always tell people, hey, I work in this coaching box where I teach people all the techniques and systems, how to build a team, how to find deals, how to go to contract, how to write contracts, how to operate deals. But um, but outside of that, I think people need to work on themselves personally too, because it doesn't matter what we accomplish professionally. We have to uh, grow personally in order to be able to accomplish more. So I work with people around that as well. So, um, you know, if people want to go download my book, Sean, they could go to my website um, and at mycorntentions.com forward slash exit plan and get a, a free download of my book. Um, I, I think that, you know, I wrote this book called Exit Plan, Your Complete Guide to Multifamily Investing and Why You Need an Exit Plan. Because all the coaching and training that I've been to over the years, people teach you how to get in a deal, find a deal, fund a deal, operate a deal. Nobody teaches you how to get out. And in real estate, um, you get you you make your money when you go in, but you don't realize it till you come out. So my goal is to teach people how to come out. How do we do do more and do better, right? So yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, so and for uh, we've got three people in the uh, audience over in green room. Let's just, I just want to acknowledge them. Uh, Ron's been here for a while. Vince, he's another guy from the Bay Area in my area, and then Crystal. Uh, they're podcasters as well. How you guys doing? Um, so let me ask you this: What advice are you, would you have for anybody who's you know going in, into business, and you know what what would you say to them to you know uh, warn them of anything uh, that that you do? You get what I'm trying to say? Yeah. So so the, here's in a nutshell: Here's the mistakes I made. I bought too much real estate way too fast. I was over, I, I was unstable because I didn't take time to balance everything out to get everything turned around. I, I paid too much for property and I was over leveraged. So I was 70, uh, I was 85% loan to value when I should have been uh, 65 or 70% loan to value. I didn't listen to people around me. I didn't pay attention to the red flags that came up along the way. I thought I had everything handled and I didn't. 
So what I tell people today is listen to the people around you, think things through, underwrite your deals conservatively, get a mentor, get a coach. I think they're two different things, right? A mentor is somebody you can come up alongside and help them and learn from them. A coach is somebody who's going to help you with core techniques and strategies and systems, help you execute and help you be successful. You know, I'm partnering with some of my coaching clients right now on a few deals. So, you know, a coach is going to give you that flexibility and that ability as well. So, you know, I think you can learn from people and their experiences and those things that go on. Uh, but you have to put yourself in that environment. You know, I always tell people, how much are you going to spend on education this year? Because you should spend 10% of your income on your education. So, Wow. I, I didn't know that figure. So, I mean, educating yourself more as an adult in, in learning or whatever that looks like for, for us, right? Yeah. You know, I've been, I've been in coaching for 20 years. I've had a, a, a personal coach paid a thousand dollars a month for one-on-one -on -one coaching for 20 years. And um, as a result of that, it's helped my business grow. I've scaled my business 20% a year uh, because I was held accountable to a, I was held accountable to a higher standard. And that's what a good coach will do for you. That's awesome. man. I've always been hesitant when I think about coaching, you know, it was like, God damn, it's so expensive. I don't know if I can do it, but I, I see the, I see the benefits and the advantages of it too. You know, it's basically, you know, you're getting somebody's uh, blueprint of how they've done something and uh, you know, was, you know, it's getting all getting through all the pitfalls, I guess you would say. Well, here's the deal though. See, it's not about how I've done it. It's about how we design it around a way that works for you and how we help you uh, scale as a, as a result of who you are. Yeah, for, for sure. Sorry about that. I was listening, reading what Sandy yeah. was saying. She said, but what about those who are faced with lengthy sentencing and those who are incarcerated but innocent? Yeah, there's always going to be that. I, there was a staggering number of, of uh, I, I heard a, a number. It was like somewhere in like 10,000 people a year. Uh, get wrongfully incarcerated. Yeah. You know, it's you know, some crazy number. And what's funny is, I, you know, even being locked up, and you might relate to this, Sean, when, when I was in prison, all these guys said, hey, you know, there, they were very few guys that said, oh, I stole the money or I, I had that amount of drugs on me. You know, a lot of it was ghost dope. A lot of it was pretend. A lot of it was because somebody made conspiracies, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of that that went on. I think there is a good level of um, um, wrongfully wrongful incarceration. I think the that's why the government has such a high conviction rate. Um, but I also think a lot of times people don't take responsibility for their actions. Listen, I, I take responsibility for my actions. I screwed up. I broke the law. I acted unethical, and enough unethical actions caused me to break the law. Should I have gotten ten years? Probably not. You know, it was probably a little bit too long of a sentence. I mean, if if, if my restitution would have been two million instead of eighteen million, um, I, I I would have only served. You know, would have only had about three years. Yeah, no, for sure. And and those ghost dope uh, conspiracy cases as well. I mean, they're they're over sentenced too. Yeah. You know, and, and a lot of them, I've talked to 10 different ones uh, over the phone and I've recorded those conversations and all, none of them have ever, ever even said that, you know, no, we did it. We, we did it. But I mean, we didn't do 30 years worth, you know, for something that's, you know, just that's nonviolent. And, you know, who, who were the victims really? You know, it's so and anyways. Here's the other thing real quick, though, is. um Whenever I thought I had it really bad, I'd look around me and see some of the other guys that got worse than me. One of my best friends um, that I developed this relationship with the last seven years of his sentence, we were locked up together for seven years. Uh, he did 17 years for a couple grams of crack. And because somebody said, he, he, he sold me this much over this period of time. And so, um, so somebody's always got it worse than you. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. Well, I want to thank you, Mike, uh, for coming on the show, sharing your story, uh, giving some some nuggets and gems of information there. Uh, that was definitely helpful. And uh, I want to thank all the people in the audience that were listening and took the time to stop by. Appreciate it and appreciate you. Uh, any, If you want to find uh, Mike and his services, you can go to mycoreintentions.com. And all the links and direct links and everything to the episode will be available uh, in the description or in the show notes when this does come out on the podcast platforms in a couple of months. So thanks, Mike. I definitely appreciate you. Thanks, Sean. I appreciate you. Good luck. I love your mission, man. Keep it up. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. All right. Now we've got... uh, one more coming at you uh, at six o'clock. So I'm going to go ahead and shut this one down and then restart another one at six. And that will be for Ron Ross and his two sons that were in federal prison and kind of what his perspective was as a father having two boys or his two boys locked up in federal prison. So that's coming next. Uh, once again, thank you. Appreciate it for you listening. Anybody who's out there viewing on the live stream and the live audio stream that is going to green room. I appreciate you guys watching uh, until next time. Keep it 100. Stay true to yourself. Everything else is just noise. You've been listening to the Nowhere to Go But Up podcast. Sean is a single dad, a union blue collar guy, and he spent time in federal and state prison for drug trafficking and fraud. When he was released from prison in 2006, all he had was the clothes on his back, a bag of mail, and some paperwork. Since then, he's turned his life around and shares the struggles and successes on this podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show, and we hope you were moved to connect to the show. Book a guest spot. For merch, Patreon, PayPal, and social media links, go to linktr.ee slash nowhere to go but up. On Instagram at nowhere to go but up now. On Twitter at but up now. On the YouTube channel at nowhere to go but up podcast. See you next time.